Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, welcome back. My life has been a bit hectic. I am not a good nurse. I'm a lousy caregiver. I don't have the genetics to be a good caregiver, and I'm being forced to do that <laughs> because my wife um, is not mobile. She has to move around on crutches or a walker. She can't move around. She's still in a lot of pain from breaking her leg. And people are asking me, what are my plans for the summer sale this year? And it's sort of up in the air right now. Fortunately for us, we have two houses right next to each other. And we're going to be selling the house we live in and moving into the upstairs apartment of the house that was the first house we bought when we got married and we've used as a rental property over the years. And we were able to move her into the upstairs apartment, which has a bedroom and a bathroom and a kitchen and a living room all on one floor. Well, I'm going back and forth between the new house and the old house, and we will eventually move into that apartment and sell the new house and use that uh, to pay for some of the debt that we've incurred on the summer home edition and then be debt-free at that point in time. But... In the meantime, when am I going sailing this summer? I'm really not sure. First of all, we're going to have to... uh, I've been told that I can't go sailing until the new house is sold. And it's in a very desirable desirable location in Salt Lake, so that won't be hard to sell. And, of course, I'll try to get top dollar out of it. And then secondly, move everything up up to the summer home, up to the ranch. Let me tell you, now it's fallen all on my shoulders because my wife really is not able to help much in packing or doing anything, and it's not pleasant, let me tell you. Anyway, we have an interview today that is produced by Jack Andrews, and it's an interview with Steve of a website called noforeignland.com, and I recommend you go check it out. It's N-O foreign, F-O-R-E-I-G-N land, L-A-N-D dot com. I signed up for it, and I put in some uh, some anchorages. The anchorages I put in, if you've gone to the podcast or gone to the website, and you see the picture of my boat sitting there in this nice, beautiful bay, I actually marked on the map near Gocek, Turkey, exactly where that photograph was taken and wrote a description of the anchorage and you can share your local knowledge with everybody else as well through this website. And also track boats that you're interested in, in following. I just put in Jack's boat, Vanessa, and found out where he's at. He's in Malta right now, on the hard, having some work done on the boat. But before we get to that, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. This show is sponsored in part by Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping self-sufficient sailors with tools, supplies, and knowledge they need to sew for their boats. This second-generation family business is also the maker of the Sailrite UltraFeed sewing machine. The UltraFeed is a portable, heavy-duty sewing machine that was designed to handle all your maritime sewing projects from sails to covers. 
At Sailrite, you'll find everything you need to take on your next do-it-yourself project, including fabric, tools, hardware, and even hundreds of free how-to video tutorials. Start your next project at Sailrite.com. That's S-A-I-L-R-I-T-E dot com. Well, we do have some questions and emails, so let's get to that. Get ready for today's mailbag. I like getting emails from my friends out there, so if you have any thoughts, comments, suggestions, or questions, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. Now for today's emails. Well, I heard from... Ron Allen. I haven't heard from Ron in quite a while. Ron was one of the guests on the podcast quite a while ago when he lived up in uh, New Jersey, and he sent some photographs of the hurricane that came through there and demolished his dock and some of the boats in his area. Well, Ron's retired, and he's now moved to Florida, and he sent me a picture of his boat in Florida on the lift and also sent me a picture of the same boat up in New Jersey with ice and snow surrounding the boat. And I said it looked like a lot better spot to be in Florida than in, in, uh, in New Jersey in the winter. And he gave me a link. He said, hey, Franz, if you're looking at putting AIS on the boat, I have some suggestions for, him, for me. And he said, um, I'm going to read from his email. I'm very happy with my AIS that does both transmit and receive which cost me less than a receive-only unit. I can send you the link if you'd like to see it. A simple install is a standalone unit or connected to the chart plotter. And then he sent me some pictures. Um, and he, then he sent me the link, and I went and locked on to the link, and it's from AliExpress. And it's a 4.3-inch color LCD Class B Maritime Navigation AIS Receiver GPS... And so it's got both an AIS transponder and receiver in it, and it's $409. And he's apparently happy with it. I've never, there's no brand name on this. I'll try to put a link in the show notes if I remember. Uh, But Ron is pretty happy with it. It looks uh, like the right price. Total price, I guess that includes shipping, is $409.44. So that was Good information. Thanks, Ron. It's good to hear from you again. I tried to get him to come back and give us an update on what's going on in his life, but he declined. But nonetheless, I really appreciate you sharing this information. Then I got a note from Matt Young, and Matt is one of my Patreons. He said, I'm sorry to hear about my wife. He said, my wife spent some time as an ER nurse, and in her experience... The household step stools are a dangerous thing. Thanks for addressing my request for information on the Sea of Cortez and reaching out to Lewis. I want to clear up misunderstanding. And then he goes on to say that uh, he gave me the wrong signature on the email and, and just clarified that. Then he goes on to say in the next paragraph, I really appreciate your interest, affection, and knowledge on Turkey. It is a rare thing to find U.S. citizens who have an understanding about this country. We are connected to Turkey by our daughter, Isabel. She spent a year there during high school as an exchange student. 
That was 2013. Since that time, we've been following the affairs there with interest. Isabel loves the culture, the people, and her Turkish exchange family deeply. Currently, she has mastered the language while studying at Columbia University with a married Turkish couple who run the program there. She spent last summer doing economic development work in Istanbul. What has been personal to her has been the cultural and political crackdown. She knows students and teachers who have had their schools shut down in large part due to imprisonment of teachers, some of whom she knows. At this point, her professors at Columbia cannot return to their country for fear of imprisonment. She has been involved with Turkey for an interesting and dark period. Anyway, I wanted to share with this you as our take interest and concern about this great culture. And thanks again for the podcast. Matt, thanks. That's interesting. Since uh, I did that podcast, the Central Bank of Turkey came out and raised the interest rate 3%. I think it went from 12 to 15%. And on that date, the Turkish lira spiked. And then it started coming back down again because I still think the inflation rate is higher than the interest rate. Out of curiosity, I'm going to pull it up right now and, and see what the exchange rate is. Yeah, right now it's 4.7 Turkish lira to the dollar. And on that day, it got down to, back down to 4. Point, uh, I think 4.23. So it went, the exchange rate went down and then it went back up again. They're definitely not out of the woods uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm a little concerned with what Erdogan is doing. He's tr- he seems to be trying to turn it into an Islamic republic. And let me tell you, Kamal Ataturk would be turning over in his grave if he saw what was going on in Turkey right now. And if, so, if you don't know who Kamal Ataturk was, he was sort of the father of Turkey, who fought um, in World War I at uh, Gallipoli, rallied the troops to repress or repel the, um, the sacrificial fodder who, which Churchill had placed from primarily... Uh, Australia and New Zealand to try to overtake the fort, the fortifications at Gallipoli. And I did get off the boat there at one point in time and go through the battlefields there and, and see what had happened. Every year in, uh, in Turkey they have an Anzac Day where they welcome back the uh, people from uh, New Zealand and Australia and the, the offspring of the people who fought at that battle, which was a major battle. Nobody made any progress in that battle. It was just just massive, massive killing of each other. And uh, my attitude is if America had not gotten involved in World War I, we would not have had a World War II. Dan Carlin in his podcast, Hardcore History, talks about World War I in some of his podcasts. And And some historians, and I tend to agree with this, make the argument that America bankers got America involved in World War I because the British had borrowed so much money from America that they wanted to protect their investment and make sure that Britain won the war. So the argument being is basically we went to war to make sure the bankers were paid back the money owed by Britain because... When Britain won the war, of course, what did they do? They asked for reparations from Germany, which 
led to the Weimar Republic, which was massive inflationary. Basically, they ended up printing money to try to pay back the money that they owed Britain, which directly led to the rise of Hitler and World War II. So that's going way beyond what you asked me. But anyway, yeah. Thanks for sharing that information on Turkey. Got an email from Jocko Marlinspike. I don't know if that's his real last name, but that's his name he's using on his email. He says, Hi, Franz. I have a question for you pertaining to voluntary crew, which I have never heard addressed by any other podcast or YouTube sailing channel. Some people never use crew, but instead sail solo or ale as a couple, so they might not know what to do if a crew member becomes problematic at sea. I know you often have various crew come aboard your boat, and you switch crew now and then in various points along your journey, so I'd like to know if you've ever had a disruptive or problematic crew aboard and how you manage that situation. This topic came to my attention after watching a recent YouTube video, and he gives me the link to the YouTube video, where a sailboat captain put a disabled crewman in a small dinghy in dubious weather conditions for a five-mile, three-and-a-half-hour journey to shore because somebody on board wanted phone cards. I reacted very unfavorably via an irate, ill-tempered email to the captain for allowing the crewman to depart the boat in that situation as I thought other options were available than to put one, the one-armed man's life in danger. The captain responded to me explaining that the one-armed crewman essentially demanded that he be allowed to leave the boat. So, Franz, what does a captain do if someone wants to disembark your boat in unsafe conditions in an, unser- in an unseaworthy dinghy? What if they are insistent? Do you allow them to go or not? I myself believe that the captain has a duty to care to that crew member and to others on the boat to exercise caution with a view towards life safety of everybody concerned. I would say that under no circumstances should you allow a one-armed man to depart in such conditions, but to immediately get the boat underway to the nearest possible port where you would disembark the troublesome crew member ashore with their belongings. Have you ever had such trouble? How about your listeners? And then he includes the exchange with the captain, and he asks that I not identify them in the podcast for sake of privacy, so I'm not going to go into any more on this email, give you my thoughts. Well, first of all, I, I got your email, and I, I reached out to John Fulweiler. He's the maritime attorney that we've had come on the podcast a couple times, and I wrote him an email said, John, why don't you come back on? and address this question, because this is really uh, falls under the rules of admiralty law or maritime law. But I took quite a few business law classes in college, and, and I had a great professor. And so I will address it from what I think would be the best way to, to deal with it. And, and this, this professor, and he was one of my favorite professors, I really enjoyed business law in college, But he always said the prudent man rule. Ask yourself, what would a prudent man do in this situation? Because that's really the standard most likely you're going to be held up to, is what would a prudent man do? And this actually came up one time, a few years ago, in my rental property. I had had an electrician come in and rewire the uh, basement apartment. 
but I didn't want him to rewire the upstairs apartment. And he made a connection upstairs between the two parts of the house, and by accident, he connected a 12-gauge wire to a 14-gauge wire, but had not, uh, and, and this is just a simple oversight that can happen very easily, but he had not downsized the circuit breaker. And the people that were living there were running some electric space heaters through this, uh, through this wire, so it was just running tremendous amps, heating up this connection, and that's always where you have the problems, is actually at the terminations and connections between wires. And, uh, and started smoldering and smoldering and smoldering. And, and my daughter, who was leave, living in the basement apartment at the time, called me up at about 3 o'clock in the morning and said, Dad, I'm smelling smoke throughout the apartment down here. So I got up and went over to the house next door and knocked on the door, woke him up, and I could smell the smoke. And I walked in. I couldn't identify where the smoke was coming from, but I just asked myself, okay, what would a prudent man do? And a prudent man would have called the fire department. So that's what I did. I called 911, told them the situation. They said, get everybody out of the house, and uh, we'll be there. And they were there within two or three minutes. If you're ever in trouble, don't bother with the police. Call the fire department. Their response time is much faster than the police department. Anyway, they showed up, and they went through the house with an uh, infrared detector. It was a screen that would show hot spots, and they found the hot spot in the children's bedroom right above where the children were sleeping, and it had been smoldering and smoldering and smoldering, and they said it probably would have burst into flame within about a half an hour. And we dealt with the situation at that point in time. They were so professional. I mean, I was extremely impressed with the fire department. They got everybody out of the house. They laid down a plastic tarp on the floor and then cut a hole in the roof and then ran the water from the roof down around the connection to, um, to cool it down and then cleaned up after themselves. I mean, it was dirty, but they did as little damage as possible to the house. And if in, a, in a house, if you fight a fire, so much of the damage that is caused is caused by water, not the fire, but the water in, in putting out the fire. But anyway, the, coming back to what a prudent man would do. So I'll be interested in seeing what John says, but here's what I probably would have done. And I watched the video, and... I wouldn't have let him go. Uh, first of all, I would have said, hey, if you want to go to shore, go ahead and swim, but you're not taking my dinghy. Because what he did is he took the ship's dinghy. And so now he left everybody on board uh, without a dinghy. And it, it was rough conditions. It was choppy. They were at anchor. And it was somewhat choppy. It wasn't, wasn't really that dangerous for the dinghy. I looked at the video. It wasn't that dangerous, but I probably would not have let him go to shore. Or I would say, you know, you, uh, as long as you're on the boat, you're under my command. If you want to leave the boat, you can swim, but I'm not going to, uh, and I don't know if that would be proper either, but I would basically make it difficult for him to, uh, to leave the boat. I'll tell you a story. And this is one of my favorite stories from my friend Jack, who I've sailed with many times when Jack was oh, around 18, 19, 20 years old, he lived in Los Angeles and he heard about a, uh, I guess it was a record executive that bought a boat called Namsang. And you can actually search for Namsang on the internet. It was a 70 foot wooden boat, beautiful boat. 
And it was sailing down to New Zealand and Australia, and the guy was looking for crew members. So my friend Jack, who had really no sailing experience up until that point in time, volunteered. And so he sailed on down to, uh, to New Zealand. Now, this is a story that is uh, every <laughs> adolescence or every teenage boy's dream. When they got to Tahiti, and this is this, not whether you believe this or not is up to you, but when they got to Tahiti, Jack said they were tied up at the dock and a boat came in and didn't tie up, but came very close to the dock, threw off a bag and threw off a woman and then turned around and left. And this woman was an attractive woman, sashayed down the dock and looked at the guys, I think it was a five guy crew on them, saying and said, Hey, how would you like a crew member? And though, of course, they, you know, five <laughs> young men with normal, with, uh, normal desires said, sure, hop on board. And she proceeded to uh, sail with them on, uh, basically down to, I think, New Zealand. And <laughs> she was going from bunk to bunk to bunk all day, all night long, to where the guys were just totally exhausted, just totally exhausted. They couldn't take it anymore. Uh, she was, um, she had a, 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 an exceedingly strong uh, sexual desire, basically what you'd say, a nymphomaniac. <laughs> so when they got to New Zealand, they threw her off the boat. But along the way, just so they could get some sleep at night, now this is according to Jack, Now I don't know if this is true, but this is according to Jack, and you can take it or leave it. Uh, but this is hearsay. They to control her, they basically put her in a sail bag and tied her into the sail bag so she couldn't get out and bother them at night anymore. So she she slept in a sail bag. You know, if you tie a sail bag, uh, those sail bags were huge, up around the neck, so they can't get their arm out of it to untie it. Then somebody can't really do much. But that was what they did supposedly to uh, to control this woman on on the boat. Now, he said it was funny. They got down to New Zealand. She got off the boat. She started, you know, he said, it's really funny, Franz, that three men walking down the street see a beautiful woman coming at them. They turn around and run. So that's how they dealt with a, un, a, a, a problematic crew member. Me, I've never had that problem. There's been crew members that I've had on the boat that I was glad to get rid of. Not very often. But my attitude has always been, if I can sail the boat by myself, as long as I can last out a week, uh, that's all I need to really worry about. And I've never really had any bad uh, crew members. As a general rule, I've always had a great time with my crew that I invite on board. And of course, I, I explain in great detail what they can expect on my boat before they get on the boat, so there's no surprises. I hope that answers your question, but I'll be interested to see if John will come on the podcast and talk about what uh, you are required from a legal perspective to do for a problematic crew member. Another email came from Dave Jevons, and he said, Franz, I enjoyed your thoughts about the Turkish economy and central banks. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as regards to monetary sovereignty and global financial liquidity? And the end says in parentheses, as a deflationary currency. 
I'll be sailing in Greece this summer, by the way. Thanks for ta- talking with me on the phone. I gave him a call and talked to him about sailing in the Aeolian Islands, and I suggested that he not go there. And so he told me he changed his plans to sail in the Ionians. Then he goes to say, I'll be in Venice this summer and eastern Spain. Keep up the great podcast, Dave. Well, now we're del- delving into finance. And, you know, my job is a registered investment advisor. But none of my thoughts here are investment advice. If you want my investment advice, you have to become a paying client. So this is just my thoughts on cryptocurrencies. Well, I've followed Bitcoin pretty much from when it was a dollar on. I was aware of it back then, and I thought about putting $100 into it when it was just uh, selling it around a dollar. I never did 2020 hindsight. But I did buy, oh, I did set up a Coinbase account and buy... $50 worth when Bitcoin was selling for $500. And actually, I wanted to buy $500. I wanted to buy one Bitcoin at the time uh, because I just wanted to get some experience with the process of buying and selling selling Bitcoin. Now, it's not easy for an American citizen to set up a... uh, Uh, Well, I shouldn't say it's not easy, but it's certainly not anonymous to set up a Coinbase account. They get your bank account. They get all the information on you, including your Social Security number and everything else. So the idea that it's anonymous, that a cryptocurrency is anonymous, at least in the United States, is bogus. Um, So here's, here's the arguments for cryptocurrencies. Number one, it's digital so you can transact business uh, at quickly. It's based on blockchain. And I have two different thoughts. One's on Bitcoin and one's on blockchain. And so the idea is it's anonymous. Well, it's really not anonymous because the ledger, the Bitcoin ledger, has keeps track of every transaction that takes place in that currency. Now, you can anonymize your information, but still... It probably could be um, figured out if there was such if there was a really big demand to figure out who was buying and selling the Bitcoin. It's not really easy to work with. So here's my situation. So I say, okay, I go sailing. I want to go over to Turkey and I want to take some of my cryptocurrencies with me. Well, okay, I can do it a couple of ways. I can put the chain or the token on a uh, thumb drive and take it with me. Well, what do I do with it when I get there? (laughs) Who are you going to sell it to? You're going to have to set up a bank account. And I don't know about you, but it's not easy for an American citizen to set up bank accounts overseas. If you can find somebody overseas to actually use your cryptocurrency for products you desire, and then you can exchange cryptocurrencies for those products, well, that's fine. But that doesn't exist right now. And... The whole idea of Bitcoin and a lot of the cryptocurrencies now is it's just a speculative vehicle. It's the total greater fool theory. You're buying a Bitcoin in the hopes that somebody in the future will buy it at a greater price than what you paid for it. It's not being used as a currency. It's being used strictly as a speculation vehicle. I like the idea of a uh, digital currency. 
but I'm not seeing this to be the case with Bitcoin or Ethereum or all the other ones. Now, let's say you have a Bitcoin and you paid $500 for it. and You, you decided, oh, hey, I want to take some of that Bitcoin and buy some Ethereum with it. And let's say you, uh, you sell your Bitcoin and buy some Ethereum. Guess what? You just did a taxable event. When you sold that Bitcoin and bought that Ethereum, that profit you made on Bitcoin will be taxed. Now, a lot of people don't realize that, but the reality is it's considered an asset, and you bought it at one price and sold it at another price. The difference between the two is a taxable gain. So if you took all that money and bought Ethereum with it and didn't withhold some money from taxes, guess what? The IRS probably will be starting to come after you. And let me tell you, tax fraud is not something fun. It's not fun. It's, and in this case, it's not defensible. If you bought a cryptocurrency, sold it, bought another cryptocurrency, sold it, every time you sell it, buy it and sell it, that's a trend, taxable transaction. But bottom line to me, right now, the way it sits on cryptocurrencies is it's a, uh, the whole greater fool theory. Now, I'm a libertarian. I don't believe that government should have a monopoly in currencies. A currency is simply an exchange for value. I mean, right now we use the dollar. Uh, you could use barter. You could use any number of things. But uh, I don't think the dollar is uh, any better than a cryptocurrency. It's just that it's what is used for most transactions. When uh, some of the digital currencies get to the point where it's actually used for transactions instead of a um, speculative vehicle, the greater fool theory of investing, then, um, then it might succeed in becoming a currency that can be used for actual transactions. It's not right now. The other bad side of uh, Bitcoin is the amazing amount of electricity and the amount of time that it takes to verify a transaction now. Early on, when the uh, blockchain was small, it could be done fairly quickly. Now that there's been exchanges set up and there's been transactions done, that blockchain has gotten longer and longer and longer. And now it's taking up to a half an hour to verify a transaction. And, of course, they're coming up with all sorts of forks in the cryptocurrencies. So when you say it's a deflationary currency, not really. Not really. They're coming up with all these forks to lower the value of So there's going to be an infinite number of Bitcoin type of currencies. So anybody can set up another Bitcoin type currency or a cryptocurrency, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. Uh, so mm, I'll tell you what. I've been to, well, I've been to Thailand and Vietnam and Turkey and Greece and, in, oh, I've been to a lot of other countries, but these are the countries I actually did an experiment with. I went into a jewelry store in Vietnam, just a random jewelry store walking down the street. I walked into a jewelry store and I went up to the people and I said, listen, if I had a one ounce gold maple leaf, what would you pay me for that gold maple leaf? in the local currency. And they came up with a number, and it was basically um, pretty darn close to the real spot value of a gold at that point in time, a one-ounce gold coin. Same thing happened. I went into the 
Grand Bazaar in Turkey, walked into one of the jewelry stores in the gold section of the Grand Bazaar. I said, hey, if I had a one-ounce gold maple leaf, what would you pay me for it? And they said, 0.999. I said, yep. And they wrote down what it was, and it was pretty much spot, maybe a little more than spot, because there's a, uh, there's a value of the minting of that, that uh, maple leaf. And the same thing happened in Thailand. So if I want to transfer wealth, I can throw a couple cold coins in my pocket and walk into any gold shop anywhere in the world and sell it. If I wanted to trade in a Bitcoin, number one, I've got to get on the internet. I've got to find it, go onto an exchange, sell it, get it transferred to a bank account, and then somehow get the local currency out of the bank account. <laughs> That's a lot harder than walking into a jewelry store with anonymous wealth and getting money. So, no. For me, like I say, I own some. I'm experimenting with it. I think it, uh, it may have a future, but it's the greater fool theory of uh, speculation right now. It's not ready for prime time. Now, that being said, what about the blockchain? Well, the blockchain is something that uh, could revolutionize quite a number of industries. And the, and the industry that comes to my mind is one of the easiest to disrupt would be the title insurance business. So they could have all the transactions that have gone on a specific piece of property, set into the blockchain, unalterable, going back as far as you want, that would be a use of the blockchain. But that has nothing to do with cryptocurrencies. That's just the blockchain. So the, the blockchain has is, is, uh, got a lot of value, in my opinion. Cryptocurrencies, not so much. You know, in the, in the stock market is also just the greater fool theory of investing. I mean, let's, let's take a stock, for instance. You know, a stock represents a specific proportional interest in an actual business. So there is actual tangible assets associated with the stock. But when a company issues stock, that's the only time the company actually gets money and then when it trades on the open market, then it's just the greater fool buying the stock from you. When you buy a stock, you hope somebody in the future will be willing to pay you more for that stock than you paid for it. And some of that is going to be dependent on how the company performs. There's nothing like that in the blockchain. It's just the greater fool theory, period, end of story. And there's no tangible value associated with a cryptocurrency. One of the things I like, and I've talked about this in the past, is I like to invest. I'm an angel investor, and I like to invest in startups at the angel level. So in that case, I'm the original fool. <laughs> I am the total original fool. I'm not the greater fool. I'm the original fool when I invest in some of these startup companies, and it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more fun. We're toying with the idea of putting together a, uh, a private equity group in my firm to invest in startups and Series A and Series B rounds for startup companies, but that would only be available for uh, accredited investors. But that's where I see the value in investing right now. It's not in the public markets that are pretty much at a close to an all-time high in valuation measurements, whereas the, uh, the values can still be found in private, the, the startups. Well the startups, and uh, the Series A rounds. Anyway, I hope that answers your question. 
just my opinion. This is not considered any investment advice. I got an email from Andrew Vick. He just gave me a link. There's an uh, Adriatic Pilot that you can buy on Amazon. It's from, um, I think it's from Imray. And it's by T.D. T.N.D. Thompson is the author on it. He says it's much better than 777. So I may pick up a copy and take over with me this summer. Just a heads up. 777 is not the only one. Imray, Imray is putting out another pilot called the Adriatic Pilot. And it covers Croatia, Slovenia, and Montenegro. I got an email from David Payne. said, I've been enjoying your podcast and have recently purchased and started listening to your sailing lessons on iTunes. I really enjoy your laid back and open approach. My friend and I have caught the sailing bug from a friend here in San Diego who has a 38-foot Bavaria. We are planning on taking a seven-day course, five days of class, and two days bareboat from the San Diego Sailing Academy in June in order to facilitate a trip we have planned in September. We plan on getting our 101, ASA 101, 103, and 104 certificates. Our plan is to take a friend we have had since childhood who is getting married and several other friends to Greece in order to, say the, in order to sail the Cocladis for a week in a bareboat catamaran charter. I thought I'd reach out and say hi and also see if you have any advice for us. I also want to express my appreciation for sharing your experience with those of us who are still getting our feet wet as we are. Thanks, Dave Payne. Okay, a bareboat charter in the Cocladis on a catamaran. Well, I've sailed off the, uh, well, I've sailed in the Pacific, Newport Ensenada race several times. I've sailed with friends in, in uh, off the coast of California a lot. My friend Jack and I have sailed over to Ventura a lot. And I've never really seen that strong of winds in the Pacific. If you're planning on going to the Cocladis in the, in the Aegean, uh, you may have weather like we had last summer. And it will be stronger than any winds you've probably sailed in, in Southern California. Usually it's, uh, you don't have much wind. I know I've been on several Newport Ensenada races where you're just, you know, you're dead in the water. There's just very little wind. Um, I mean, sometimes when you do get nice winds, it's just pleasant winds, but you don't get the consistent long-term day after day strong winds that you may get in the summer in the, uh, in the Aegean. Yeah. That being said, the thing I also, you're doing a catamaran, which are lots of fun, and they're big, and they're big pigs that take up a lot of dock space in areas that have limited dock space. So I'm not a big fan of chartering catamarans because a catamaran is going to take up the space that three monohulls could take up in some of these small harbors. So it's going to be, well, you, it's going to be difficult to get dock space unless you plan on anchoring out. And some of these places don't have good places to anchor. You're going to be wanting to go to the town dock. I might suggest that instead of getting a catamaran, you might consider getting a, a monohull, a 47 or 50-foot monohull, which, um, which is going to be easier for you to find docking space. Also, if you're going to do this, 
I would suggest that um, your route be from south to north and back. I would not suggest that you charter a boat, let's say, out of Athens and head over and start working your way down the islands and then have to come back to Athens. I've done that, and I had to come back in Ameltimi, which was miserable as could be. I would suggest that instead you might charter a boat, let's say, and um, I'm trying to think of a place that would have a charter base. Well, Rhodes. Rhodes would be a good place to charter out of. Charter in Rhodes. Uh, work your way north. You, from Rhodes, you can go to um, Niseros. You can go to Telos. You can go to several islands around there. You can go to Simi. Work your way north. And then if the Meltimis come up, you can turn around and have a sleigh ride back. So you basically are putting distance in the bank, money, you know, distance in the bank. I would not suggest sailing from north to south and then having to come back north again. You have no idea how strong the Meltimis can be. And if, if you have to go with the wind, you can handle it. If you have to go against the wind, your life is going to be miserable. And uh, I know a lot of people that charter boats are taking serious risk with their lives and their boats just to try to get the boat back on the day that it is due in bad weather. So those are my thoughts. I've done lots of podcasts talking about the, uh, the Aegean, so just go back and listen to some of those podcasts. All right, that finishes up the letters today. That's it for today's emails. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, or comments or questions, write me, franz1 at medsailor.com, or use the contact form at the website. If you want to do me a big favor, you could become a Patreon of the podcast. I have a few listeners out there that are already patrons, and I'm looking for more. If you have some spare change that you could throw my way once in a while, please sign up at patreon.com backslash medsailor. And one more thing, if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast directory. All right, let's get on to today's episode. So I think this is the third interview that Jack conducted. I got an email from Neil Fletcher, and he did do some recordings of the Newport Ensenada race, but he's been ill and hasn't been able to finish up that episode. But I look forward to that from Neil. If you would like to be a contributor to the podcast, hey, that's great. I'd love to have correspondents all around the world talking to interesting people and sharing their stories. So if you have any interest in doing that, write me, franz1 at medsailor.com. Now let's get on to the interview now let's get on to this interview produced by Jack Andrews. Hello, it's Jack Andrews again uh, for Franz's Sailing the Mediterranean podcast. This time I'm here with Steve Neal. We're uh, at Marina de Ragusa and, and it's absolutely blowing a gale out there. Has been for the last two days. So we're in a little bit of a echoey meeting room instead of a lovely boat. Um, Steve's been here for the last few winters. I've known him for a couple of years now. And we um, decided to have a little chat about a project that he's kicked off the ground. 
the project is called No Foreign Land, and I'll let him talk about that in detail. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm sort of going to ask him about his sailing experience and his boat first. So, Steve, tell us about uh, how you got into sailing and your boat in the last couple of years of sailing. Cheers, Jack. Yeah, well, yeah, Lena and I did um, a sailing holiday a few years ago, fell in love with sailing and uh, got a bit obsessed about buying our own boat. So now we've got a lovely uh, Halbo Grassy 43 we've been living on for the last two years. We've owned her for about six years. Um, and yeah, I've been full-time liverboard for the last couple of years. So we've been uh, all around the UK, from the UK across Biscay down to the Med. And uh, now we're, yeah, we're here with the big liverboard community in Marina de Ragusa and uh, making plans to get across to the Caribbean sometime in the next year. Right. Okay. Yeah. And um, so how old is the boat? Uh, the boat's 2004. So 14 years old, we've had it for six years. And you've, you've done some big installs this year on it as well. Yeah, we've got a hydrovane on the back. Um, that's, uh, you know, in mind of getting over to the Caribbean. Done some other fairly significant jobs on it. Fitted our own water maker a couple of years ago. It's quite uh, quite laborious task. But she's good to go now, I think. Once we've got the propeller back on. <laughs> that's, that, that's been off for servicing, so that goes back on the next couple of days, hopefully, and we're we're ready to set off. Feels like it's time to get moving. Bit that that time of year, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. After that period of time, so um, no foreign land. Um, how did you come about that project? What's your experience in um, you know getting the project off the ground, and uh, what benefit is it to other sailors? Uh, well, my background has been, uh, you know, my whole career has been in IT consulting, IT development, software development, done a lot of work on websites. And uh, I think it was when, uh, when Elena and I were in Spain, cruising uh, in Spain, uh, we just couldn't find gas bottles anywhere. And all the data that we, uh, we were trying to find on the internet for it was just scattered around on wikis, scattered around on, uh, you know, blogs and little bits of information here and there we just thought it'd be great if there was a single map an interactive map that would work for for cruisers so you've got information that's pertinent to cruisers where there are you can find gas bottles where you can find chandlers where you can find a decent anchorage or a, a reasonably priced fuel station all this stuff that um, you know you kind of struggle with a little bit from time to time and that sowed the seed I think as an idea for what we might do with uh, with no foreign land um, and then last winter had a little bit of time and uh, so I thought okay I'm going to put a Google map together and initially I mean you remember it was just fun we had uh, just about every boat in the marina with an AIS transmitter mapped out on this map and uh, as we all set off around about May last year there's this big spider's web of red lines heading out across the map showing yep, the directions yep. everyone was going in. I think everybody was quite uh, surprised and fascinated that this project came about because building up a community or a group uh, you have new friends and one of the biggest things and we talked about this earlier about this lifestyle is saying goodbye yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so you know the, the beauty about being able to track each other's boats is that you don't really have to say goodbye you can cross paths you can organize to meet up and so forth yeah absolutely I mean we um, we found that um, and along with, uh, you know, 
many, many other boaters that, that were on this thing is we just kept coming back to it to find out where people were. So last summer we, uh, we did a circuit of Greece and we just hooked up with boat after boat. You know, we, uh, we would see them on the map within a few miles of us and whereas normally you just sail by and you wouldn't even know you were in the same area, we'd make plans to hook up and uh, we'd meet in an anchorage and go for drinks, go for dinner. And uh, it, it worked really nicely. I think we ended up meeting up with uh, sort of five or six other boats that we knew just from uh, Marina de Ragusa. So yeah, it was, it's fantastic for that really. And that, um, that seems to be one of the big driving forces behind it. You know, you go along to the website now and I think there are between 70 and 80 boats registered on it at the moment. So uh, it's, it's nice for, you know, for people to be able to just keep in touch like that. Absolutely, I mean, we used it last year that way. Um, but uh, it's grown a lot in information and the amount of information that's in there now compared to last year is amazing and it's only 70 boats that are on there but I think what I'm not sure what the n numbers were you probably know what the numbers that kicked off last year it wouldn't have been even 70 but I think it has the potential to grow exponentially at this point yeah yeah we're quite excited by that we're uh, we're going to start announcing it now I, I was reluctant last year to make too big a deal out of it because it was something that was put together fairly quickly um, using some uh, some new technology this all runs on the Google Cloud uh, servers which I'd not used before but they've proved to be uh, really good for what we're doing um, and it's been a stable stable platform for the last 12 months or so um, we've been piling in loads of data on it so we've got, um, well, I think we've got close to a thousand places in Greece of interest to cruisers. We've got Italy, um, Sicily, Sardinia, they're all mapped out. We've even got Cyprus, most of North Africa's on there now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my wife is quite obsessive with <laughs> sort of running through heaps of data. Again, that was uh, something she did a lot of in, in her previous life. Yeah, and also the... Um the fact that uh, it's very Mediterranean focused because ob obviously there are products out there that are, that are similar to this, but none of them have the amount of data that seems to be going into it in the med at this point in time by people that are actually on the ground and cruising these these areas. And um, that that's a key thing. Um, one other thing that you might want to just sort of explain to people that uh, if they are listening to the podcast... They could potentially look at the website and just, uh, you know, in the background, if they have the opportunity, just view the information that's there. I believe that quite a lot of it is available without even having to log in. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all the place data is available. Uh, just go along to noforeignland.com and uh, have a play on the map. You'll see there, um, there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of places that uh, might be of interest. Uh, the other thing that's key to this as well is it does work like a wiki. So if you know of a place, then go to the menus at the top, choose add a place and, uh, you know, stick it on the map. Let other people know about it. If there's a place there that you already know about, then just, you know, like it was Amazon, go along, stick a review on. You see that uh, a lot of the places have got stars listed against them and, uh, you know, more subjective uh, opinions about the place. Um, so yeah, get involved, go along. If you know, if you're in a particular cruising area and you know there's a few anchorages that we've missed, then for for goodness' sake, get in there, stick them on, and uh, and you know, spread the word a little bit. It's all good for the community. 
I know that uh, when Franz is doing these podcasts and interviews people with specific information on, on regions or their past track, he would typically go into Google Maps or Google Earth. Uh, the beauty about No Foreign Land is obviously it's using the same map, so you can just turn satellite view on. Absolutely, yeah. And um, so Franz, there's a hint for you. Turn satellite on on No Foreign Land. <laughs> and uh, I know that you were complaining about the fact that Google was eliminating uh, user pictures being entered on places. Well, one good thing about No Foreign Land, from what we discussed yesterday between Steve and I, was that uh, he's actually hosting the pictures that the people put in on this site. So as this information grows, their pictures taken by sailors and cruisers, as opposed to people on the beaches and, and so forth, or hiking. Um, and the information is there. The photos are being stored and held by, uh, by no foreign land and not Google itself. So that's quite handy. So you can zoom in, have a look at the uh, satellite view and look at the comments and the pictures on there as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're continually trying to uh, add things in that we feel are going to be useful for the site. Uh, we've also got uh, a Facebook group, No Foreign Land, that we, you know, we encourage people to put comments in and to give us feedback on any new ideas that they would uh, like to see on the site. And uh, you know, just let us know what you think. Let us know if you think there's uh, a real need for something that we're missing because. You know, if, if it rings true with other people in the group, then it's obviously something we need to look at, and we'll we'll try and get it up there. And if um, if somebody wanted to join No Foreign Land, uh, what's the process? Uh, the process is dead easy. You just um, go along to the website and sign in. You can use your Google ID, you can use your Facebook ID, or if you're not comfortable with those, you can just put in your email address and a password, and and that's it. You're on the site. If, um, if you also want to put your boat on the map, then you just go through a short registration form for the boat, put in uh, the boat name, your MMSI number, and, uh, and you're good to go. Just uh, you know, choose where it is on the map. Don't stick it at zero, zero lat long, and uh, you know, stick it over an anchorage or uh, the marina where the boat's kept. And as you move around, you can manually move that pointer. You can um, set it so that it uh, picks up on your AI signal moves you every 24 hours or a newer feature is that if you arrive at a place that's on the map you hit the check-in button and your boat will move to that anchorage or that marina and uh, that's a nicer way of doing it because we actually you're putting more data into your journey then and once you've got that data in there yeah. anyone else can look at your track and say oh well they were at Civita they were at uh, you know Paphos or wherever else it yeah. was and uh, they can click through and see what the place was like that you stopped at, and they can talk to you about that. So, um, and and it will draw a track of your boat travels as well. Absolutely, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, give that a try. Go to noforeignland.com. You'll see all the little uh, boat icons on the map. Click on one to bring up its uh, its info dialog, and in there, there's a little link you can say show journey, and it will sketch that journey across the map with arrows for directions and. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's pretty cool. You can actually, uh, I mean, for example, I'm going to put our boat on this. So I'm going to go to the search field at the top, type in Amalia, and Amalia of London comes up. Yep. So I've entered that, and that puts our boat up on the map, and then there's the show journey. So I click on that. Yep, and then... 
when that yeah. comes yeah. up, you end up having a, a historical track yeah. of the entire journey. Yeah. In fact, I've been playing with something on that and I've broken so, it. So let's use your boat. <laughs> <laughs> let's put in uh, Vesna there. Yeah. And there we go. Yeah, there's Vesna's track. Yeah, and you can see that you guys well, we did a few, the, <laughs> you did uh, a few miles last year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, you're going to wear your boat out, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> That's the plan. Yeah, That's the plan. yeah, yeah. Good lads, right? Um, so, what's the cost uh, to join? Nothing. No, just uh, get on there. At the moment, the uh, the cost for running it are fairly minimal. So, uh, Elena and I are just, uh, you know, we're, we're covering that. It's it's a fun project for us. But um, now, if you want to get involved and uh, start, you know, tracking your journey. You can follow other boats as well, actually. It's probably something that's worth mentioning at this point because there are 70-odd boats on there. It can be a little bit crowded. So you go through and, uh, you know, so, for example, Jack is on our list of uh, boats that we're following and you can actually filter the map a little bit so you can hide any boats that you're not too interested in. So you can build your own, you know, sort of uh, perspective on this. So so that's a... that's selected by the user, you end up selecting the, the people that you want to follow. Or, That's right, yeah. And, yeah. and if you turn that on as a filter, all the other boats they uh, just disappear. They remove right. yeah, the okay. map. Yeah. Um, and of course, I mean, this is a fantastic opportunity for people that know other boats that, say, for instance, in our case, we're, you know, we're always looking for kid boats. Um, you know, if you, if you know that these kid boats are around, you can, you can then follow them and... Uh, you know, people have plans, but those plans change constantly. And instead of sending messages on Facebook all the time, you know, where are you, what are you doing, which way are you going, you can pretty much track it and you can make your own decision whether you want to catch up with somebody uh, or or avoid somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's been mentioned in the past as well. Maybe we need a, a special coloured icon for those for those boats. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh no, it's such and such. My liver will not handle this. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, and the other thing is when people log in, I mean, they've got access they've got access to most information even without logging in. And then when they do log in, they've got access to all the boat information that's and all right. the other members that are on there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a that's a huge resource. And I know that um, you know, recently you've you're working on Corsica. Yeah, um, we've got some base data for Corsica that's a bit messy. I mean, if uh, yeah, if anyone who's listening knows Corsica well and wants to get involved, then uh, get in touch on the Facebook group, No Foreign Land, and uh, let me know because we're uh, we've we've got heaps and heaps of data that we're not ready to put on the map yet because it's just it's not it's not a, in a in a condition where it's. Uh, Suitable, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, you know, sure. there, there's no point putting data on a map that's second rate because, you know, you look at it and you think, oh, well, that's wrong and that's wrong, so everything else must be wrong. We want decent quality data on here, which is why, you know, Elena's been going through and uh, taking time to do research around different places and, uh, you know, keeping things as tidy as we can keep it. So, yeah, Corsica we've got base data for, a few other countries we've got base data for that isn't actually shown yet, so um, if there's anyone... Who, uh, who'd like to get involved and uh, got a few hours to kill, uh, well, a few hours, a fair few hours to kill over however <laughs> yeah. long it, you know, it takes them, then, yeah, let me know and um, that'd, be, that'd be really nice. 
Well, just recently, I, I know that uh, Franz interviewed Andrew Vick, and Andrew's been in, you know, doing the same as what Franz does, comes over in the summers. His boat's been in Croatia for quite a while, and uh, he has a huge amount of local knowledge. And, it's, and, and at the same time, there's other people that have put together um, you know, tables of information, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet or points on a, on a map that they've created themselves. Um, and they willingly share this. I mean, you know, this is a great location to put that information in on um, because, you know, as you're looking at it, some of the information you might have gathered is a bit older, but as you look at the locations on no foreign land, there might be a, there already might be an entry on there and you could just simply read through that and maybe just review it uh, knowing local knowledge that you have from your own information or update things that are being missed. Um, and then you've got access to it yourself, so which is great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, just like we're saying with, uh, you can have your favorite boats, you can have favorite uh, places as well. So again, you can filter the map as a user. You can say, all right, well, um, I know Finnecay really well. So yeah, yeah. you hit the little <laughs> heart, icon, heart icon on the Finnecay page. And uh, you go to the filters, turn the filters uh, to only show your favorites and you'll see Finnecay and anything else that you've, uh, you know, you hit the, hit the heart icon on. So the users can control what content's on there. And we find that we, you know, that's a fairly new feature, as you know. But, you know, that's, that's something that we've been using a lot because with, um, you know, close to 2,000 markers on the, on the map now, it can be a little bit overwhelming. So now that Elena and I are planning our journey for the summer, we just hit the heart icon on places that we like the look of and uh, we can clear everything else off the map and we're getting a rough idea of places that we're, we're likely to be headed over the next few months on our way out of the Med. Yeah, and so when you typically look at the map, you have um, the boats, which are you know shaped like a sailboat, so they're pretty easy to identify. Yeah, yeah. And then you have blues and yellows and reds and so forth with a little number in it. What does that mean? Yeah, those mad numbers. Um, what you'll find is in, uh, in a small area, if there's a lot of markers on the map, is that you can't see what those markers are. They're all, they all cover one another over. So instead, what you get are these, they look like, um, like little explosions, I guess, like a little sort of radar pattern on the map in yeah, reds, blues, yellows and things. And they've got a number in the center. So if you click on one of those numbers, it will zoom you into that part of the map and it will show you that number of individual place markers. So um, as we're looking at the map now, we can see over Palermo, there's a, there's a number 33 in, uh, in an orange blob. So if I click on that and zoom in, we can now see there's a bunch of anchorages, there's a couple of marinas, there's some supermarkets. Uh, what else we got? What's that one there? Navigational information. Trapani separation scheme, yeah. So there's there's a bunch yeah. of stuff on there that's you know. So those those uh, yeah those little numbers basically mean there's a concentration of data here, and you need to click in to see the details. Yeah, and uh, you know the other thing is that I'm noticing that there's quite a bit of stuff going into Tunisia now as well, which is great because we we want to go into Tunisia yeah. this uh, this summer only briefly, but. Um, you know, a lot of places, there isn't a lot of information on Tunisia that's up to date. I mean, sure, that you know, you can get on Noonside and so forth, but the stuff that's going into here is happening pretty much right now or, 
within the last season. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you can you can pretty much spot the places where we've been going and we've been interested in because Elaine has gone nuts on them. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think, uh, yeah, I'm not sure about the count. Maybe we can do something like that. What does that show us? That's uh, probably not very accurate. But there, I think there's something like uh, in the region of 50 places now marked uh, along the Tunisian coast. Um because that's somewhere also that we're thinking across. Right. It's not a, yeah. big, not a big journey from here, is it? Yeah. So that'd be a nice, uh, a nice little sort of trip. And speaking of journeys, I mean, the, um, the boats are venturing out. There are, there are people that, were, that joined No Foreign Land last summer that are now out in the Caribbean, and, and you're starting to see entries in the U.S. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we know some of the friends that we made here last year have been... Uh, Across, I think we've got four boats now that have made it across over to the Caribbean. I mean, we can take a look over there. And I know that um, Kev and Bev on Kiolani have been uh, really into the project. So they've, uh, if I look at their journey, you can see that there's a cluster of places along there. I think this is... Um, let's have a little look. Yeah, so this Martinique, is Martinique. And, yeah. yeah, you can see they've started putting in anchorages and uh, you know information over there. So that's really cool. I think uh, also on there, St. Lucia as well. Half a dozen places in there. Look at that. We know where there's a laundrette that we can go and use in St. Lucia in Rodney Bay now. <laughs> Pretty handy stuff. <laughs> well, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to be favouriting that one, eh? <laughs> yeah, so, um, and you're heading over this uh, coming... Um, crossing period right yeah that's right yeah we're going to be um heading out we uh we'd like to be in port south of portugal for september Elena's portuguese so we'll spend a little bit of time with uh with her family just sailing around there for a week or two and then we'll start heading south canaries cap verde and uh at the moment our uh, our outline of a plan is maybe to go further south on the crossing and get to brazil rather than doing the conventional route over to uh right brazil windward islands yeah, yeah yeah there's not many people do that but uh yeah it's uh it's we, we've been we've been there once or twice our honeymoon was in brazil actually and uh, we've been over there a few times on holiday we like the place so uh yeah quite quite like that idea it's right. growing on us yeah yeah I think that's something that's going to be interesting as well because Brazil, um, there's good places and there's potentially not so good places. Um, I, know, I, I was watching Delos um, the other day and, you know, they, they had some local information there with some friends that obviously follow them, uh, coming and meeting them and giving them all the heads up. And that sort of, that level of information is fantastic. And they went to uh, some nice places uh, so far in Brazil. But, uh, yeah, Brazil's great. I mean, that's off the beaten track normally. You know, you got the Med, you got the Caribbean, but you don't have a lot of people venturing out of that area. I mean, sure, you do to an extent, but a lot of the times they're locals from Brazil and so on. But uh, that trip that you're, you're doing the crossing, are you doing it just the two of you on the boat? Yeah, that's the plan. Yeah, just... Me, Elena, and Doris, which is what we've christened the uh, the wind vane already. Oh, right, that's not, Doris. Not even, yeah, yeah, not even had a sea trial yet, uh, and, yeah. uh, and already she's called Doris. And that vane is effectively a, a second rudder, right? So if you, yeah, yeah. If you lose your primary rudder, you you've got a second rudder. Yeah, 
That's pretty cool. Um, and the fact that it's not using any power to uh, that's to steer a, that's you across. That's a big draw, hey? Yeah, we've got yeah. auxiliary rudder. We've got uh, no amps being drawn. Um, the, the boat's in good shape, but you never know with electronics once they get over a certain age. So if we have a problem with the autopilot, it's not going to be uh, you know down to two of us to hand steer for days and days on end. So it's uh, I think uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good thing to put on the boat and. Um, there's a whole bunch of them to pick and choose from, but this one seemed to be the best fit for us, and we got in touch with other owners of uh, the same boat and also similar-sized boats, and all the reports we had back from them were very good. So, so what's the brand? Uh, it's Hydrovane. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So well-known and, uh, yeah, good, good customer service as well. Yeah, and uh, as far as the trip over, what are you planning on as far as days? What do you think it's going to take? And who knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I don't know. A couple of weeks, or maybe a little bit more. We 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 don't like to uh, push push a boat hard. We like to sort of take things easy and uh, and plod along. Right. So really, as, as long as we've got provisions on board, we don't care whether it takes two weeks, takes three weeks. It's it's about getting there and getting there in uh, safety and, and comfort. And, yeah, and you've got yeah. the you got a water maker, so you're fine. You're... Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'll get my and I'll get my butt kicked if I try and uh, try and go too fast. Anyway, so you know the admiral gets a bit upset. Yep, yep. And what yeah. what sort of a sail plan have you got for the downwind? Uh, we've got uh, we've got white sails, and we've also got a parasailer, which we've used a little bit in the med. But with the winds being as fluky as they are, it's it's quite a thing to handle. So uh, yeah, we we're looking forward to getting the parasailer up and using that in some in some cleaner wind as well. Right, okay, yeah. yes. And um, communication-wise, are you going to go to any Iridium products? And Yeah, we've got a sat phone, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll use, uh, we're planning to use Chris Parker's weather service. Okay. So um, rather than bothering with uh, trying to access internet while we're in the middle of an ocean, we'll, uh, we'll go with a conventional sat phone that can be chucked in the grab bag if we need to. Or, uh, right, so it's a convention. And so Chris Parker, you, you just pay for the crossing on a plan of some sort and you phone him up? Or, yeah, or? it works out cheaper with him if you've got SSB, but uh, with a satellite phone, you can uh, you pay for a fixed number of calls. Okay. I yeah. think it's, it's, it's reasonable. It's a couple of hundred dollars for a dozen calls or thereabouts. And, uh, you know, so if we... You know, call the guy every other day and just get an update on on weather. Yeah, because the other option that people go with is the Predict Wind Iridium Go packages. Yeah, which is really uh, popular right now. Yeah, but um, for years and years, people have crossed with, you know, yeah, with their fingers crossed <laughs> yeah. for guidance. You yes. Know? So yeah. I, I, well, there's people that row across every year, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So even if you did nothing, you could drift across at three knots. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just we'll get there one way or another. Yeah. But uh, now, obviously, you want to, you know, take the precautions that you can. But uh, so, is there anything that we haven't covered on no foreign land that you'd want to cover? Um, no, I think we've pretty much nailed it, Jack. We've got. Uh, we know that we can put our boats on there. We can track boat positions on the map. We know that we can add all sorts of information points on the map. Um, have a look at the help pages. There are, especially if you're going to start putting your own data on there, take a good look at the map before you edit or add anything. Have a look at the help pages. There are some guidelines there on, uh, you know, what sort of data should be put in. 
and um, the different types of places that are supported. I think there's probably something in the region of 20 different types of place, and it's a good idea to get a feel for those rather than just guessing at what you think is appropriate. But uh, yeah, get involved, get on there, add some data, track your boats, hook up with people that you've met, and uh, yeah, have some fun with it. It's, uh, it's out there to be enjoyed. And if nothing else, it's a, it's a lot of information that's all up there for free that you can access whether you uh, log in or not. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, thanks very much for your time and telling us about No Foreign Land. Thanks for creating No Foreign Land. It's certainly You're been useful. Welcome. Yeah, cool. Um, and have a safe journey across. Cheers, Jack. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.